Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 54, AeroV Maintenance. Now that winter is fading, it's time to have a look at our planes. It's time to get them ready for the season and, and do that engine maintenance that we've been putting off in these cold, dreary days. Smart pilots are going to pay particular attention to their engines. And we're going to go over the common maintenance items, the items that you need to look at when you're bringing it out of hibernation and getting it ready for a full flying season coming ahead. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic 1374. We've got a full crew joining today. So we got John Gillis, we got Gary Motley, we got Carl Benda, we got Mike Niedenthal, and we got Steve Rothert. Mike and Steve are coming from Sun and Fun, and uh, we'll get their update here in just a second. So running down the list, everybody knows John. John is best known for his many YX customizations, and he's deep into his YXB conversion. So John, what's the latest on the conversion project? Oh, I got my uh, back-ordered parts, um, really fancy $200 milled uh, lower attachment brackets that I'm really impressed with the quality. I'm not too impressed with the cost, but they are going to allow me to complete the project sometime before uh, Oshkosh. Nice. So that means you're going to be uh, grafting that forward and aft fuselage together real soon then, huh? Uh, this weekend as we talk. Very good. All right, exciting progress. And Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot, former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, but I, I might have a, a topic for a future podcast. Okay, let's hear it. A brief little thing. This last week, I was taking a new first passenger up for a flight. After about an hour or so returning, kind of on mid to short final, my uh, uh, beautiful multifunction primary flight display decided it wanted to reboot itself spontaneously uh and unfortunately it was unsuccessful after many reboots so just continued the flight went ahead and landed and, and tried to sort out later but we might talk about uh, you know uh, full-scale avionics failures uh, in flight and, and what to do with those yeah that's a good idea well this kind of ties in with the with the whole boeing uh problems they're having with mcas right mike of course, <laughs> they're exactly the, they're exactly the same. Yeah. So, uh, and that voice is Mike Needenthal. So, Mike uh, joining us from Sun and Fun. First off, defend defend Boeing and defend MCAS, and then uh, and then we'll uh, figure out uh, your Sun and Fun piece here. So, Mike, go ahead. I I have no defense. Uh, I think the fact that the FAA was probably hiding a system that they didn't tell anyone about. Uh, it's probably going to get him in hot water with the congressional actions. And uh, this could be a while. This could be, it could be several months, I, I think, before the airplane's flying again. So, Yeah, that can't be good for their bottom line either. No, it's going to hurt him bad. And it's certainly not good for the airlines that are heavily invested in them and having them sit on yeah. the ground. I mean, we only have 30... Four of them, and then uh, out of seven hundred fifty, so it's about four percent of our our 
equipment, but that still uh, puts a pinch in everything, of course. Yeah, but 4% of those kind of dollars is big bucks. Yeah, oh yeah. Yep. They're, they're, they're scrambling, there's no doubt. Okay, so Mike, uh, now that we're taking this little diversion, so as a pilot who flies both <laughs> regular 737s and the new 737 Maxes with the MCAS system, um, what... Right. What's the deal? I mean, do these things just uh, constantly malfunction? That's kind of what the media makes it sound like, or uh, or is this a really rare thing? What's going on? I've flown it four days, and I've never seen anything happen. It flies just like the other one. And uh, four days out of like you know eight or ten months, uh, and I have not. And anybody at Southwest has not seen a blip of many. But Mike, I've I've uh, I followed you taking off on a on a you know a close uh, uh, takeoff and formation, and you tend to pitch up and down a lot. So I don't know. <laughs> I, is that I do? Well, is that just normal? Maybe I was practicing for the possibility of that happening. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I like it. Practice makes perfect. Hey, hey, John, if you if you replay that, what Mike actually said is no one could tell the difference. There you go. <laughs> well, see, he was he was uh, trying to mirror my pitching attitude, and so he was just making me feel better. Right. Well, because you, you're up point, and down need, all the time. At this point, we need to bring Carl in and talk about pitch attitudes. That's, that's right, <laughs> Carl. I love him. Help me, <laughs> Carl. Uh, you, you were out doing something uh, something interesting, weren't you? I was getting my uh, I, IFR. I was just getting my uh, IFR certification on my 310. Got that all finished tonight. So, hey, Carl, are you saying that you just got your IFR certification on your 310? So you've added a 310 to your livery of airplane? Yes, I added another airplane to my harem. <laughs> How many airplanes do you have in your quiver now? Um, nine. <laughs> you know, Carl, you got to stop bringing strays home. You just got to focus on the ones you have. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that I sounds like my wife with dogs. <laughs> I focus on all of them. What are you talking about? <laughs> so <laughs> they suck all my time. So. <laughs> So I guess I'm going to start a, a used plane lot. Anybody need a plane? Hi, my name's Carl, and I have an airplane problem. <laughs> <laughs> AV Could <is> be anonymous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll be flying that one over your house soon, John. I need a ride in that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's turn this over to. Mike and to Steve from uh, the grounds of Sun and Fun. Let's get a quick Sun and Fun update, and then we'll bring it back and we'll do our main topic of AeroV maintenance. So, Mike, tell us about you know arriving at Sun and Fun. Tell us what you saw on your first day there, and then just kind of run down some of the highlights that you've seen so far, and maybe what you're looking forward to before you leave. All right. Well, we're actually leaving tomorrow morning, but we got here Monday evening. Uh, Steve came out of Denver, of course. I came out of Las Vegas. Uh, we had no issues. We got here and we spent the night over. We had to find a hotel over here in the middle of Lakeland and went in the next morning around 10, 1030 because it was gloomy. Yesterday morning was very gloomy. 
and kind of rainy, misty. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of transient aircraft. There was actually probably none. And uh, it was very slow yesterday morning initially. Uh, no crowds, no nothing. I went by uh, the Sonics booth. They didn't look real happy. Mark did not look happy. Carrie was kind of looking off at the distance. <laughs> and uh, no one else was around. At, but today, totally opposite. Lots of people. It was a beautiful day. Uh, you know, we, we hit like... Uh, the FA building a couple of times, talked to talking ADSB. Uh, Steve actually stopped and talked to the UAvionics people about different things. Uh, I actually bought a blade version of my, tra- my transponder antenna because mine wasn't working real well on my airplane. And uh, pretty much just catching up with old friends, bumping into people from all over the country. And uh, and that's been uh, it's been a quick two days. So. Um, not nothing looking weren't like a thing particular except maybe more issues maybe more things about ADSB and uh, and the FA answered uh, quite a few questions. So um, go back to the the blade antenna for your transponder. So you you upgraded your Mode C transponder antenna or you bought something to do with your ADSB? I, I did not. I was actually uh, I had a, a a transponder check done a couple of weeks ago. And the guy had a hard time uh, getting a reading with my little stub antenna, and so and it was also it it was a little bit bent, like I maybe you know ran over too many things that maybe Reclaw or something. I don't know, but uh, so basically he he said he finally got a good reading on it, and he says you know he goes maybe you ought to get a blade antenna. He goes it'll last forever, and he goes it'll help your ADSB, it'll help you all the way around. So basically, that's what I was looking for. So Mike, I ended up picking up picking up one at Spruce. Mike, are you describing that you had one of those uh, transponder antennas? That looks like a ball on a stick. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I tried several of those, and even just trying to clean the belly of my aircraft, it was very, very easy to damage and break those things right off. So and that's would... probably what I probably bumped it. You know, me cleaning the belly, laying on my back. So yeah. basically. Uh, I just bought a, a blade, and, and I still have my Mozi. That's I've not done anything, but I still have the UAvionics, uh, you know, my ADSB in and out with those guys. So yeah, so which those works guys, great. This, those ball and uh, stick uh, antennas, I really would not recommend whatsoever. And I, I agree, Mike. The blade is the way to go. Much more robust. Gary, I have two of those, and you're making me feel bad. Yeah, well, you should. <laughs> I can see how it'd be an inferior court, uh, you know. The size of your balls probably is really <laughs> proportional. <laughs> hey, that that is irrelevant, Gary. They're tender and they and, they are. And Jeff, uh, don't you dare cut that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Anyhow, so uh, Steve had a couple interesting conversations with uh, the uh, FAA people about ADS. Yeah, things. let's hear it. Yeah, you want to tell here? Well, uh, there are a couple of things that questions that I asked them. One of which is, um, there's nothing to prevent any of us from putting in someone else's registration number in your ADSB transmitter, and then going down to fly and flying through Class B airspace, and then somebody else is going to get a letter from the FAA. Okay. If, yeah, if you actually, to I think I've heard of a couple of cases of that. 
Yeah. Uh, yep. Of course, if you get caught, you know, of, of, of course, that's a serious offense. But it's a serious offense. But then you're going to somebody's going to get a letter, and then they're going to have to prove that they weren't flying at the time. Sure. So that's, and, and, and Carl and, has nine airplanes, and I have the registration numbers of most of them. And and the guys at the at the FAA said, you know, this is one of the first times we've ever heard that question. So you know, they're trying oh, to think what can we? Well, that's hard. Again, to well, mm. Gary, I'm just I'm just relaying the information that they told me. Okay. Yeah. That's question, what I tell my customers I when I, when I don't have an answer is I've never heard of that before. So, that's an easy out. Yeah. yeah. The other the other question I was asking them was what happens on January 2nd if you do not have an ADSB out unit. And I mean that in particular with a couple of questions and they said well as long as you stay out of class B and class C airspace stay out of the 30 mile veil stay below 10,000 feet you can still go. And you can fly IFR, and you can fly with flight following. You can go through Class D airspace without a problem. So that was new information for me. Um, trying to think what else I wanted to I, We talked with them about that. Oh, the other question I asked them was, when you're out flying and you're getting weather and traffic information, how far out does the look ahead go? And, and this was the first time they mentioned that they basically have three types of towers. One that's around, I think they said goes up to around 3,000 feet AGL. The second set of towers goes up to about 10,000 feet. And then the third set of towers, you know, goes everywhere. But the interesting part of that was two-thirds of the towers that they've got out there are the 3,000-foot towers. So... So when you're flying along at 3,000 feet, you may only get weather and traffic that's maybe 200 some miles out. Whereas if you're up at 10,000 feet, you know, you're a whole lot further. And if you were to go way up, you're getting everything. So I thought that was kind of interesting because sometimes when I've gotten updates, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to get updated for the whole country or 500 miles out or what. So... That was an interesting conversation with them. That kind of flies, it, it, that kind of fits with what I've seen coming back from Oshkosh, especially scud running, is if I didn't get high enough, I didn't get any kind of weather yep. uh, uh, feedback uh, way out, you know, in, in middle of Nebraska. Yep. Yep. And um, they sent me some documents, John. I haven't had a chance to look at them, see me else yet. When I get back to Colorado, I'll forward them to you. That gives more details about that. The other thing we did not see, the other thing I was looking at was if there were any new vendors that were selling any new ADSB products, and we didn't see anything, anything new. So it looks like it looks like UAvionics then is going to have the market cornered at least for a while on the low cost solution. On the low on the low cost. I think you're probably right. I've put in, installed one of them. I'm getting ready to install a second one when I get back to Colorado. Um, you know, working with Jeff and, you know, there are a couple more in the wind. Hmm. And the other thing I found out was uh, when you, when you uh, 
basically you <clears throat> when you request your uh, ADSB output, you know, like your quality of, of what you're putting out. Uh, I found out from the, from the gentleman that he says, if you go all the way down to the bottom of the page, because I said, I, I would like love to have like a Google map. He goes, well, we don't put those out unless you actually request that. So you can go all the way down to the bottom. He goes, if you see it then the bottom, if you see any more, if uh, any more questions, please emails uh, an email address. He goes, that was him or his office. And he says, email, he says, request a Google map overlay and they will send you a Google map overlay of your most recent flight. So I learned that's from another thing I learned. So about ADSB. So. I guess that brings the question, how long are they going to archive all this data they're gathering? Uh, we didn't get any definitive answer from them because there was a lot of, you could tell there was a lot of, uh, I think these guys weren't even sure. If they weren't sure, they're not telling. Yeah, they probably don't know. Well, and Jeff, being in the IT world, uh, they're going to keep it forever. I mean, terabytes of data is cheap now. Yeah, well. So that was yeah, yeah. That was pretty much our our whole thing down here was trying to find the ADSB kind of see if there was new vendors. We wanted to, Steve wanted to ask some questions up at the FAA, and also we were looking for engine. There was no engine people down here with new engines that we saw, like some of the ones you saw we saw at Oshkosh, Jeff. Uh, I didn't see any of those guys down here. In the experimental market or the certified? Yes. Well, tr yeah. In the experimental market, you know, Tracy has told me about some engine that the guys are using on their trikes. It's a out of a Yamaha snowmobile, and then a guy's made a reduction drive that they speak very highly of this. Uh, he was not there. Uh, um, so yeah, that, that was the only other thing I was looking for. That's at. Mohawk Arrow. And um, yeah, it's really intriguing because you get a, a lightweight uh, sled engine and it's putting out like 120 to like 140 horsepower. Yeah, and it's pretty light. And the, apparently the guy who makes the reduction drive, I've tracked, I'm going to track him down and just get more information about it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I asked him for the, the preliminary information. Um, you know, they're really kind of focusing on trikes and gyros and a few other things like that. I think they've got some Zenith 750s that they're putting them in also. But um, they say the whole package is only like 7500 bucks. Wow. Yeah, I didn't get a... I didn't get a price on it, but they, they tell me that it's a fairly light engine, too, with, yeah. with the radiator and everything. So, Do you think it's less than 180, 180 pounds? The, the guesswork that I've seen, I'm going to say yes, but until I talk with the guy, I don't know. Yeah, they're advertising weights similar to a 912. Yeah, about 180. Yeah, so I, I don't know exactly. Um, it may be in their info packet. But yeah, pretty intriguing. But like like everything, you know, the proof is in the fleet hours. And so they get fleet hours to present. It's hard to get super excited. And yeah, multiple, absolutely. multiple installations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, well, and you're heavy. seeing. Go ahead. There's I've seen those installed on the Swift and on the Kit Fox. Yeah, so. they have them on Kit Foxes. You're right, Carl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've looked into it. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty impressive. So, and they're getting quite a few hours. 
uh, running them and stuff like that. Performance is very good. Yeah, th- there's a guy local in uh, in the Springs area that flies um, either a Sky Ranger or like a Rans S6. I forget which it was. Um, and he's got a Yamaha in that thing. And he was saying it, it's putting out like 150 horsepower, and it was a screamer. He'd come into Springs East all the time. Yep. So, yep, but they're getting more, they're becoming more and more popular, so. Tell them about uh, maybe iFly GPS. Oh, and also, uh, you know, I stopped at the, because uh, I have iFly GPS and I have Farflight, and I found some, you know, they're really, uh, I've always, I've, I've come to like iFly GPS just for the display they have for old man eyes, so to speak. And uh, they, they had some pretty interesting, uh, I learned a few tidbits from those guys. So if anybody's interested in something like that in their app, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good app to use. So they are real helpful. What's the biggest strength over ForeFlight that you get with iFly? Uh, I like, I just like the presentation as far as navigating. Cause it just, to me, it shows, it's a clear, shows a bolder, more detailed uh, map. And they also, now they have 3D, they have a 3D function. And it's split screen, just like you would on uh, with Fourflight, and they're and they're only about sixty or seventy bucks a year for the whole thing. Are you running that on a uh, tablet or, or your phone? I'm running on my tablet. Okay. Uh, and Fourflight, I mean on, on the iPad. Yeah. I mean, so I've not tried it with anything else. I mean, I had tried it with my phone for a while, but now now I just have it on my tablet. So. I thought iFly used to have a dedicated console of their own. They they do. They also have they also have the hardware, but then they have an app also. Yeah, I think that it's going to be hard to justify making your own custom display when you can get an iPad for dirt cheap and take advantage yep. of that tech. Yeah, so that you know, in two days we did a lot of running around, and that's pretty much uh, sums it up. I mean, the weather was gorgeous today. It's supposed to be nice tomorrow, and it's supposed to rain the rest of the week. So, uh, you know, it might be a little soggy by Friday, Saturday, the last two days. So. Hmm. Well, um, are you leaving like first thing in the morning or are you going to go hit the show at all? No, uh, no, probably in the morning. Okay. We're looking for seats, looking for seats to escape, you know? Yeah, right. Problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, it sounds like you guys are having a good time and, uh, I, uh, I wish I could have been there myself this year, but it just wasn't going to happen. All right. Well, uh, that, that's, about, that's about it from Sun and Fun Central. Yeah, good deal. Uh, thanks for that update. Uh, appreciate getting it, you know, man on the street style. All righty. All right, we'll have a good trip home. Uh, Mike, Steve, thanks, and, right. and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, thanks, guys. Have See a good show. Okay. See you later. See you. All right. Well, turning back to uh, the main topic here, I have I have one item of news that I want to just briefly hit, and then uh, and then we'll go on. And I think it's related to the, the maintenance. So you probably have seen this. Um, it was on Catherine's report. There was a post on it on SonicsBuilders.net. It was the NTSB final report of a Sonics accident that happened in 2017. This was Sonics 305 Alpha Lima. It was a Jabru 3300 powered Sonics. The um, the pilot was a relatively low time sport pilot, uh, low overall time, and just a few hours, you know, like 20 or 30 hours in a Sonics. And um, he had a, a long protracted sort of phase one testing period where he was chasing fuel leaks in his fuel tank. And then when he finally got that solved, he was uh, making another flight 
uh, after not being in the airplane and had a an in-flight fire, which then put him out of control and he ended up crashing and was killed in the crash. So just it's worth going back and having a look because there's a couple of trends here that that come up. First off, there's the obvious maintenance aspect. If there is a maintenance issue with the airplane, we really got to identify that beforehand. You know, worst case scenario, a fire breaking out in the engine compartment. I can't think of anything that'd be just more terrifying and distracting than trying to deal with that. And secondly, the, the other piece of this is you got to practice those emergency procedures. When things go bad, you may have very little time to react properly and, and quickly. And so I think those are as bad as the, as the accident was, we can take those away and, and kind of use them to learn from the experience and hopefully not repeat those same mistakes. Gary, did, did you read this accident? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, actually, I did notice that one, too. And, you know, a very sad circumstance. I was very sorry to hear about that. Um, yeah, you know, my, my general impression, and you know, I've been guilty of this, too, in many, many respects, is sometimes you can get so tunnel visioned on something that you don't step back and look at the big picture. Um, and, and you have to do that. Uh, there's a lots of little things that will come up and just bite you in the ass. If you're having a problem with mechanically with the aircraft, no matter what the real situation is, of course, you want to need to certainly try to sit, you know, troubleshoot it, but boy, you want, you want to really step back for a while and think about it, uh, before you go flying, maybe even take a couple of days. You know, if you've got somebody else that you can trust to come by and just kind of double check something, um, because it's very, very, very easy to get really tunnel visioned on some of these things. And, and I'll be the first to admit that it's happened to me before as well. Um, so it sounded like, you know, he may have fixed, you know, one leak and, and not realize that he had created some uh, loose connections in, in other parts. Um, I will even tell you that when one of my last inspections in my aircraft, I did a 200-hour engine inspection on the, uh, as per the maintenance of uh, the engine as they recommended in the service bulletin and went back and I was doing some uh, high, you know, high pressure pump fuel checks. You know, I checked one pump, everything was okie dokie. I checked the second pump, everything was okie dokie. And I had somebody throw on both pumps for me while I was back there looking and damn sure enough, if I didn't spot a leak, um, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that they can kind of bite you. You know, if, if you don't go through an absolute check, every possible configuration of it, uh, you can, you can end up with a problem that could be a real, real nightmare sometimes. Yeah. And the, the evidence in this particular case shows that there were loose fittings up in the engine compartment. Now, were they never torqued down properly? Were they torqued marginally and then loosened over those first few hours of phase one? Or were they removed when he was doing the, the greater repair and then just never retorqued? That's hard to answer, but you're right, Gary. The only way we can guard against that is just to be really, really rigorous in double-checking our work and creative and trying to come up with what-if scenarios and, and identify what possibly could go wrong. Carl, you know, you're an AMP, and, and you deal with this all the time. What What do you think? I think you should always ask for a second look or second set of eyes to double-check your work. Nobody, I mean, I have... I'm guilty of making mistakes or not tightening, tightening something up or, you know, um, that even though you go through and you double check and you triple check yourself, 
it's always better to have somebody come behind you and take a look at what you're doing just to give you a different perspective of what you're doing to make sure that what you're doing is safe. So that's normally what I do. And torque seal, torque seal, torque seal. You know, if you've actually really torqued something down, mark it with some torque seal on it, then you'll have a better idea that you've actually re-verified that to make sure it was it was seated correctly that you wanted it and how you wanted it done. Yeah, that's a good technique just to kind of, you know, provide some double check over your own shoulder. And and Carl, just thinking about what you just said, in a in a certified aircraft maintenance op environment. Uh, that's the whole dynamic between the mechanic performing the work, the AMP, and then the, the IA who comes in and, and double checks that mechanic's work and makes sure that it's ready to go back out the door. And I'm sure you have that in, in more uh, rigorous applications, business and airlines and things like that. We don't necessarily have that as just an individual home-built aviation maintainer working on your own airplane. Uh, it's probably a good idea to go enlist a friend and just say, hey, come look over my shoulder and give me a second set of eyes, especially when you've done something major, you know, before the first flight or after a major surgery or, or downtime. Correct. I mean, there's usually, you know, there's enough people where at Metal Lake at, that are willing. You know, there's a lot of builders and there's a lot of people that you could go to to ask for just for them to come and take a look. So, um, you know, you need to rely on your fellow builders that you're close to to come behind or or beside you and take a look at what you're doing just to double check you know before you know before you, you do a if you do a major repair or modification it would you know to your own benefit to have somebody come and scrutinize your work you know cuz nobody likes to hear that they did something wrong but you would rather hear that from them on the ground with the cowling off as they point it out to you rather than find it out later in the air when you really can't do anything about it. So, you know, it's, it's always better to have fellow builders or mechanics or, you know, people to take a look at what you're doing that you respect and their opinion. You know, I used to have John, but he moved off. <laughs> so now, now I had to, I had to find me another helper, another set of eyes. So but you know, there's plenty of people out you there, know, and they're they're willing to just jump right in and help. So, Carl, I was willing to help until you pushed back past six aircraft, and then it became overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you need to come out and see all my acquisitions because you'd like my Lance Air and my EA biplane. So, oh damn! damn. <laughs> <laughs> and then you buzz me to you, you buzz me in all of them just to to rub it in. I know. I'm not rubbing it in. Yeah, I am. So. <laughs> well, you know, admitting it is the first step to getting help, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> no, Carl, um, it's, a, it's another good point. The, you need to have people you can turn to. And so as individual builders, we have to go out and build that personal network. You have to get to know the people at the hangars next to you and find people that you can get along with. And so you have someone to turn to because it might be really hard to just walk up to someone cold and say, hey, you know, here's here's who I am. Would you mind walking back to me with the hangar and, and looking at my work? That could be an awkward conversation. And if it's awkward, it just may never get done. 
But if you already have a support network and you got people that you know and and you've already kind of built that relationship, now you got someone you can turn to with no problem and it doesn't get weird and, and you can actually do it. Yeah, and, and also you have to be able to um, be able to take constructive criticism willingly, you know. Um, that's also very important because everybody makes mistakes and nobody likes to hear they screwed up, but it's, you know, in, in this type of a hobby, uh, if you do make a mistake and it's someone, you know, that you, you respect and you, their opinion and their experience, well, then you should be willing to, you know, take that constructive criticism and, and take their input and use it to your benefit. So. Yeah. Well, and Carl, I take your criticism as constructive, but Gary, I just, I, I can't stand it. He's just mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I agree with Carl, too. You know, anytime someone ever makes a, a, even just the slightest suggestion that perhaps I could do something different, or is that really quite right? Uh, it would just plague me, uh, keep me up almost at night until I continue to research and research and, and either satisfy my myself one way or the other yeah it is acceptable or maybe i really should look at this uh again in a different a different light or different perspective so i think that is just part of the ongoing experience with experimental aircraft well that's a great attitude uh i i think that it would not be abnormal to have the opposite reaction which is to get offense uh or to, to get offended and then uh go off in the corner and sort of sulk um and i think we have to kind of guard ourselves from doing that and keep that open mind. And swallow your pride on occasion. You know, some, you know, pride goeth before a fall. So sometimes it's better to swallow your pride. So it's been my experience over the years. And you can learn a lot from it. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are all good comments. So let's, uh, let's transition back into the main topic here, which is the, AeroV maintenance. So to set this topic up, the whole idea is you need to do engine maintenance at some point during uh, your annual sort of uh, maintaining cycle. Now, whether you do that a little bit along the way, or you do it in conjunction with your annual condition inspection, or you just set a timeout and just knock out your engine maintenance, um, you need to have a methodical approach. So we're going to talk about what are the elements that need to go into that maintenance plan, and what are some of the specific areas that you need to focus your attention on? So again, the, the goals of doing this maintenance are really threefold. One, it's to assess the health of your engine. Secondly, it's to perform that periodic servicing that your engine really requires. And then lastly, it's to identify and address any issues before they become big problems. So when you're developing your, your plan of attack here, you know, there's lots of references out there that can help you kind of get your thoughts together. Uh, as I just kind of think through the, the list in my own head, first off, there's the AeroV assembly manual. There's a, a section in the manual that has a maintenance schedule and a checklist. And that's a good place to start to kind of build out at least an initial skeleton of items that you're going to check during your annual inspection. So things on that that you're going to find in that maintenance schedule you're going to see things like change the oil and clean the screen, uh, retorque the head bolts 
and it gives you a, a recommended torque value and, and a tightening sequence, uh, adjusting the valves, changing the air filter and servicing the spark plugs, and then checking all your fasteners and hoses and wires and things like that. So in addition to the AeroV assembly manual, you have Appendix D to FAR 43. That's the that's that, that piece that's referenced in our operating limitations that says, you know, I certify that it's in a safe condition for safe operation and it's in accordance with Appendix D. Well, there's a bunch of things that are called out in Appendix D that specifically you need to look at with regards to your engine. And there's things on there such as engine controls and the visual inspection for leaks and, and hardware, um, the engine mount and the vibration dampeners, the exhaust and then your engine accessories. So those another good area to kind of go through and read and build this skeleton that you're going to flush out. Yes, it actually asks us to, to perform that in the scope of, of Part 43 uh, for our condition inspection, even though it's not quite an annual, but they pretty much ask us to follow the same kind of guidelines. Right, and so the idea is go out there and gather your references and start building your own customized uh, inspection schedule and maintenance checklist that you're going to follow. So a lot of this stuff, you know, is on mine, and it should be on yours as well. These are all kind of known things that we got to look at. Okay, so everybody's going to approach this a little bit differently. This is just how, how my brain works and how I approach it. And we'll, we'll kind of step through here, and you guys jump in if, if there's um, other major elements that we need to slip into this sequence. So when I look at it, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to warm the airplane up. Then I'm going to expose everything. I'm going to pull the cowling and, and start removing things that are in the way. I'm going to start with an overall visual inspection. And then I'm going to start cleaning and kind of methodically going through and taking a little more detailed look as I go. After I have a, that good inspection done and everything's clean and I can see where the problems might be, I'm going to go through and I'm going to conduct the servicing, you know, the, the valves and filter and oil and things like that. When that's complete and you've addressed any of the, um, the issues that you found, then you're going to go through and you're going to reassemble everything. Check your work. Again, very important. Check your work. And then test run, button everything back up, and return it to service. So, so that's it, it, that's the overall approach that we're going to take. Uh, John, Gary, Carl, any any thoughts on that as we kind of as we kind of scope this? Then we're going to dig through in more detail here. Well, I, I might be just nitpicking with you, but I would actually do it more of a two step phase. You talk about warming everything up. I actually start with a very cold engine. Uh, because I want to check my valves while they're cold, not while they're warmed up. Um, I'll even go ahead and start and do an initial uh, cylinder compression test while it's cold. If it doesn't pass, then, of course, then we'll have to eventually move on uh, to the warm phase of that to make sure there's no problems with that aspect as well. So I typically start with a cold engine. Again, again, just to make sure I can get my valve set early enough and see if there's any expansion, particularly in the exhaust valves, uh, that might be a concern. Yeah, and, and I don't think that's uh, necessarily a problem. You have a, a plan that you're working towards. I, I approach it a little bit differently. I like to start with the warm engine just because that's the way my flow, you know, goes. Um, having a particular way you like to do it, I think there's some room to customize for each person. 
Well, Jeff, I think you're absolutely wrong. I think Gary's absolutely right. You start with your cold engine and you uh, identify problems and then you warm it up and see if those problems persist. Carl I'm will agree with me. recording this because John actually agreed with me for a change, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As hateful and mean as you are. Actually, I'd like to ask the expert, though, the person who's actually got the AMP license, what does he think? Uh, well, you know, it, it, it depends. I mean, if I'm doing... You, you have a Nanchang that leaks oil constantly. So, I, have I mean, how do you know? Leak oil constantly. <laughs> well, it, you know. I mean, you know your aircraft. I mean, if I'm doing... If I'm doing uh, the Sonex, I will... I would do it... I would start warm. I would start it, warm it up, get it up to temperature, do a good run-up, you know, to get the oil nice and mixed up, and then drain the oil, check, you know, cut the filter, do a compression test, look for leaks, you know, obvious leaks, you know, if there's anything major, and then, you know, just do a good thorough inspection, check all your push tubes, you know, uh, that type of stuff to look for leaks, and then, as you're progressing along, you're going to want to clean the engine, um, put everything back together, adjust the valves, you know, run it up, and then look for leaks. That's the big thing for me is always looking for leaks. Something that shouldn't leak so much, not like a well, radial, you know. With a Volkswagen, that's certainly an issue as well, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you want you just but there's a difference between a leak and a problem. Sure. You know, and those are the things you're looking for. I mean, if you're you're washing the b bottom side of your belly every flight with a half a quart to three quarters of a quart, you have a problem, not a leak. So and those are the things that you look for uh, that I look for, you know. Yeah, Carl. Big things like that. That's kind of the, the, my thought, too. Um, mine starts on a warm engine because the first thing I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to warm it up and then I'm going to drain the oil. And while the oil is draining, I'm, I'm doing the next phase. So I got to get the oil, I got to get it warmed up. I want it to circulate and grab any any crud in the sump. I want it to, you know, bring all the moisture out of the engine. I want to suspend that in the oil. And then before it has a chance to settle back out again, I'm going to drain it all out. And so that's, that's why I start on a warm engine. But Gary, you're going to do the same thing. You're just going to necessarily back it up to a phase zero and start on a cold engine and then you're going to warm it up and drain oil anyway. So I, I understand where you're Yeah, there's a couple different ways. Um, yeah, you know, if we try to warm an engine up to actually, you know, recoup uh, moisture and so forth, uh, that's an extensive ground run, actually. You know, we got to get it up to full operating temperatures and so forth. And I'm concerned that actually most people don't do that anyway. So I'm not real sure how effective it's going to be, but that's just my lowly opinion. Yeah. You know, the next thing that I'm starting to look at more and more and more, uh, in addition to just our compression test, which can tell us a great deal about the health of the engine, is I'm starting to incorporate more and more borescopes now. Um, for those of you who'd like to actually get a little bit more information, you know, there's a guy that is an A&P guy. He's probably well known. Many of you guys have seen some of his lectures or even attended them. Mike Bush. Uh, he does a whole host of videos for the EAA, and he talks in depth uh, about engine uh, analysis, uh, how to do bores, basically what you're looking for when you do boroscopes, and in particular with the exhaust valves. And I think that's something we, you know, we probably, it's a minimal or a modest investment, I should say now, 
to get a borescope and actually be able to physically look at our exhaust valves. And we might be able to start discerning and, and picking up imminent failures well ahead of time uh, by doing that simple borescope rather than just relying strictly on compressions uh, that we've done so much in the past. Uh, Jeff, you know, you know, you and I have discussed this before, and I've started to do this in my new engine in particular, is doing the periodic oil, oil analysis. And some of that's just for my own education and edification. Um, so I'm going to try to do that as well and see if I can't start monitoring trends and try to pick up things earlier as well. Uh, rather than just relying on just a simple compression test, because I think we can probably get fooled with that. I'm not sure how Carl's feeling with that is, but yeah, Gary, that's how I'm leaning these days. Let's talk about boroscopes, and really to talk about boroscopes, we got to back up and talk about compression testing. And so for forever, doing a compression test on the engine has been considered a way to test the health of the, the valves and the piston rings. So you, you can do this in a couple of different ways, but the standard aviation is a differential compression test where you pipe in high pressure air into the cylinder and then you check to see about how PSI. yeah, 80 PSI. And I'll put some links on, you know, some, some, uh, how to videos, but you pipe air pressure into the cylinder and the cylinder, if it's in good health, ought to hold that air pressure inside. And so if it's leaking past the rings, you can hear that leak in various places, like in the engine breather vent or the crankcase vent. If it's leaking past the intake valve, you can hear it in the intake through the carburetor. Uh, or if it's leaking past the exhaust valve, you can leak it through your exhaust system. Or you can hear it leaking through your exhaust system. And if it just doesn't hold pressure, but you can't identify where it is, well, at least you know that there's something you need to kind of ferret out, you know, rings or valves or something like that. So for the last 50, 60 years, that was the standard go-to method to, to determine whether the cylinder was in good shape. Now that we have these low-cost borescopes that you can run down through the spark plug hole, you can get a look directly at the things that you're trying to infer the health of. So you can look at the side of the, the cylinder walls and see if there's vertical scoring that uh, is allowing air to leak past the rings. You can't see the rings themselves because they're kind of buried down out of sight, but you can see evidence that they might not be you know, in great shape. And then you, if you get an articulating head borescope, you can run it down through the spark plug hole articulate this head back on itself 180 degrees and look right back up at the, the valve. You can see the face of the valve and check to see if it is a nice even color uh, or if it has a, a, a pattern that is, you know, slanted over to one side of the valve indicating that that side is running hotter than the other sides. And then you can kind of look at the edges of the valve to see if maybe they're, they're eroding or cracking or chipping or whatever. You can even get a look at the valve seat if the valve is, if you position the props, the valve is slightly open. You can get in there and see it. That gives you so much more information than just running the compression test and then trying to infer where the problem might be. And you can get a, for $200, you can get a fantastic borescope that really allows you to, to get a great look. You can take video or still pictures, file them away in your maintenance file for later, and then keep a visual log on how your cylinders are doing. And in addition, you can also look at the crown of the pistons to determine whether or not you might getting some, be getting some uh, early detonation or pre-ignition conditions as well by pitting of the crown. Right, right. So the, the borescope that I like, it's made by Vividia. It's the VA-400. You can get them on Amazon, and Aircraft Spruce sells them. They're right at $200. But the big thing you want to look for is 
you want an articulating head. So those little cheap, low-cost $30 ones you can get off eBay, uh, I mean, they work for just general inspection. But even with a little mirror attachment, they're hard to use. You want this other articulating head. It's got a little thumb button control, so you run it down to the spark plug hole, and you, and you can infinitely adjust the angle that it looks at. And that's really going to give you the best look. I would say don't waste your time and money on, on the cheaper ones. They're, uh, they're of very little value. Get a good Vividia borescope, and um, I'll put a link to the one I use. And, and uh, the, the last pictures that I took at last annuals, so you can get an idea of the type of quality that you see. Does that happen to be a color or, or black and white display? It's, uh, it's color, and um, it's relatively uh, – it's like maybe a 600 by 800 resolution photo is what you get. So you're not going to get super microscopic detail, uh, but perfectly good to see the edge of a valve and discern you know what might be a fleck of carbon and what might be a crack starting at the edge of the valve. And the name of that model once again? It's the VA400 made by Vividia, and I'll put a link in the show okay. notes to the exact model. Alrighty. How about you, Mr. Carl? What do you think? I would agree. I have a boroscope, but I, you know, a compression test is a good indicator. Generally is a, you know, a start of your inspection. And then if you have something that, you know, a low compression, and if it's, you hear hissing either in the intake or the exhaust, it would give you a reason to either want to uh, look at them with the boroscope or, pull the rocker box cover off and maybe it's just a valve adjustment. Um, something like that, but generally a compression test is just a good indicator. If you have a potential problem that you need to start looking at something, a low compression isn't always an indicator that you have a, a big problem. No, you certainly right? don't have to pull a jug. And I think most people, no. again, if you start with my, my premise of starting with a cold engine, if I ever had a low reading, then I would certainly then go back and warm the engine up and recheck it as well, uh, because you can get some expansion of the metals, which will add a better better seal. Uh, Carl, I'm sure you've heard, too, that there's always been some discussion uh, about the uh, the rings on the pistons as they travel around, that you can actually at sometimes rarely do a, a compression test and have those ring gaps all pretty much lined up, causing you some grief. Uh, however, if you run the engine for a while again, those rings continue to rotate around, and lo and behold, your next compression test is normal. So typically, I think, Carl, don't they mostly say that if you're getting an, uh, an, an 80 over 60, that you have significant concerns, not necessarily that you have to pull the jug, uh, but something you have to do further investigation. And it might be just a simple fact of just running the engine on fire for another 30 minutes or an hour or two. Uh, coming back and 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 re rechecking the compressions. Well, sixty, you know, it depends on the manufacturer, but I mean, sixty isn't a reason to be pulling jugs off for just because you have low compression. I mean, the best thing to do is to check your valve adjustment. Uh, if you do have a boroscope, look at the valves, look at the, to see if you find any cylinder wall scoring or anything obvious. Um, if you don't, then you you know you would run it some more and put a few hours on it and then check it again. Cause it could just be, it could be carbon. It could be the valve wasn't seating or something to that effect or, you know, valve adjustment when you did the compression test. And those things are not necessarily a lower compression like that. Isn't a big reason for a lot of concern right away. You know, you have to monitor it. I mean, if it's making power and it's passing the run up and there's no obvious signs of, 
uh, wear or damage or you're not seeing anything, then, you know, you're better to run it and then test it again. Yeah. Well, that's what too, is with the low compressions, you're right. As long as the engine feels like it's making good power and you don't have any real overt safety concerns, uh, you can continue to kind of run that and just monitor and check it and, and evaluate other things. And Correct. that's what, that's what, uh, I, the one thing I've learned from Carl and, you know, there's a few things I've learned from him, but the one thing I really learned is that compression tests should be taken over a period of time or the, your, your, uh, reaction to the compression tests because they will go up and down and don't overreact because you got a, suddenly a low cylinder and you just, you know, monitor it, track it. And if it continues to be low, well, then you got to deal with it. But um, um, don't don't overreact because you have suddenly a low uh, reading on one cylinder. Correct. Yeah, that's you know that's just it's one of many diagnostic tools that you have available to pinpoint problems. It's not the only thing to tell you the health of your engine. It's just a a t one of many tools is what I would say. So yeah, there's been a lot of, a lot of over the previous to boroscopes and the technology that we had, a lot of emphasis was put on the compression test. You know, yeah, that, so was the this was live, that was the live and die. Yeah, yeah. This was the live and die by test method. And, you know, people were pulling cylinders that, didn't need to be pulled. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them, you know, but the compression test said otherwise for, you know, for whatever reason. So, but now, you know, with the technology that we have now and the tools that are available and the diagnostics that we have with oil analysis and those types of things, you can track the health of your engine quite well, you know, and not get overly concerned with a, you know, a, a 60 or 62 over 80 or 65 over 80, which may sound bad, but really isn't. So, Well, and I've been monitoring one of my cylinders. I have, I have one of my cylinders, um, which typically reads low EGT compared to the others. It also is one of the, my cylinders that is low uh, compression. Um, over time, though, it has gotten back to normal and then it, now it drops off again and so i am monitoring it it probably has a problem i will eventually uh you know probably pull that head and see what's going on with it but um following carl's rules i i think we're okay you know it, it's a safe engine it's just um it may not be optimal john i want to yeah. just make one I mean, as point. long as it's making power Go ahead. I want to make a point about the the EGT since you just brought that up, um, and that is to exactly like you say, don't overreact right away. If you have one cylinder that seems to be running okay, but it just has a lower EGT than the others, uh, think about the simple things first before you start thinking that you have to do major surgery. Check the probe. It could be something as simple as that. It could be a a minor change in the way the cooling air is flowing through your engine baffles. Eliminate the easy stuff first and then move on to the more extreme things. Gary, and we talked about this, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago now, but I had one cylinder that was 200 degrees lower than all the others on my Jabru. 
And uh, and you said, are you sure it's just a, it might not be a pro problem? And I said, well, I don't think it's a pro problem, but I didn't really know. And so I thought, well, I better eliminate that as, a, as an issue. So I removed that probe. I bought a brand new EGT probe and I installed it. And then it was 100 degrees warmer than the other cylinders. And I thought, well, geez, there we go. So I went from being the lowest of the bunch to the highest of the bunch with just one swap of a probe. Who knows what really is going on in there? So when they say that EGTs are just relative, you know, trends, they really kind of mean that. Yeah, they really absolutely are. Don't even get me started on probes. I can't tell you all the problems I've had with probes of one sort or another. Uh, yeah, you just look at, especially with EGTs and uh, almost absolutely with EGTs, I'll say they are just a relative guideline. Um, I'm going to go back to this guy, Mike Bush. I've really kind of really started liking him and watching all of his stuff again. And you really should look up his videos. And he does hours worth of EGT analysis and what they mean, what they really don't mean uh, that we have taken, you know, we've, we've learned incorrectly, perhaps. Uh, especially when they came out with digital EGT readings that started giving us absolute numbers versus the early ones where you just had a trend. It showed you peak and lean a peak and rich a peak, and that was really probably the best way to go. So we've gotten too fixated on some of these numerical values when they really don't have any significance whatsoever. So just be careful with this kind of stuff. Yeah. All right, Carl. So well, just just to add to, to add to what Gary was talking about with EGTs, um, the, the thing you'd have to remember with EGTs is, is the probe is an, it's an average. It's not like a CHT where you're actually getting the actual temperature of the head. You're getting an average temperature because that probe is picking up hot and cold. Every time that valve time, opens, right. yeah, absolutely every time correct. the valve opens, it's hot and then it's cold and then it's hot and then it's cold. So you're only getting an average of the temperature, whereas your CHTs, you're getting an actual temperature of your cylinder head. So something to keep in mind about EGTs is, you know, and, and all of that it, with engine monitoring now is, is in my opinion, information overload you can spend way too much time fretting over it yeah because it depends where you where you drill those holes for your probes and everything else there's just yeah. too many variables yeah there's there is and there's you spend way too much time fretting over things that are not really important you know yeah. so got to be careful with that it's information overload do we want to talk about CHTs or keep on with something different with maintenance? Yeah, let's just uh, let's come back to the maintenance. So, Carl, what what I want to I want to round out this talk about compression testing and borescope inspection because the whole idea is to identify whether our our cylinders and heads are having issues. So, on the VW specifically, the area that you're most likely to have problems from this whole thing is the valves, and maybe the exhaust valve might be the one you're most most likely. So, if you do have a problem with a valve, what do we do about it? So you've rebuilt heads. You you have worked on VWs in both car applications and your AeroV and your and your Sonics. What do we do if we think if we think we have a valve problem that we detect while we're doing this inspection? Well the first thing is you need to identify it for sure because if you know if you decide you're gonna kick the can and pull your heads um, and check it that way um, that's obviously it's a lot of work, so you need to verify it. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna verify it 
with your compression test. So if you have a problem with, say, with an exhaust valve, what are you looking for? You want to isolate it to the fact that, if, is it leaking out of the exhaust stack? If it's leaking out of the exhaust stack, then you need to isolate it. Well, is it is it improper valve adjustment? Maybe the valve isn't seating all the way because it's just not closing all the way. So what do you need to do? You could take the valve cover off and then back out the rocker to see if the valve completely shuts. If it doesn't shut, under pressure, when you still have pressure on the system, then you can take a, a rubber mallet and try smacking the top of the valve to get it to seat, to see if you can hear it seat itself. If it seats itself, then it's probably it's just something, you know, carbon, something stuck in the valve. Who knows? And then if you can't get it to seat, then you're going to have to look at, okay, I'm going to have to pull this head. Be, what's that? Um, you know, when we, you know, one of the first things we start looking at is is the gaps in our valves, right? We're supposed to get about six thousandths is, is considered the optimal for our intake and exhaust valve gaps. Mm-hmm. And typically, as I go around, as I inspect these and adjust these, I will frequently find that my exhaust side is a little bit tighter than my intake side. And, and I think we all would probably pretty much agree that the exhaust valves get so hot that they'll have a tendency to expand over time. And that's what we want to be very careful with, that we don't get our valve gaps too tight on the exhaust side so the exhaust valves do not seat properly because it's the seating of the exhaust valves that allows them to dissipate their heat. Um, so that 6,000 optimal, uh, I kind of typically look at that as, you know, if as, as they lose 6,000s, I don't know if you would agree, Carl. I mean, it's different ways of looking at it. We have we do have a range there, but I would typically keep those perhaps a little bit looser than my intake side just to make sure that my valves will close and we'll get that uh, seating and reduction of heat. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And you kind of get a feel for it, you know, with your feeler gauge when you're adjusting your valves. You kind of get a feel for yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah, six thousandths. I don't like a, a. I don't like a snug six thousandths. I like to be able to just Sloppy run the sealer gauge. <laughs> yeah, just run it in there, nice and smooth, and it doesn't yeah. really pinch and grab in there and hold it in place. So yeah, you get a feel for it. And so. Gary, I think you already talked about this, but when the engine is cold, you're going to have a larger gap in your valves than when it's warm. And when it's up to, you know, flight temperature, that gap is going to be even lower. So if you run out of valve gap, you're going to be holding that valve open all the time. Yeah. So go for sloppy seconds on the exhaust side. Ew. (laughs) I knew you were going to go there, Gary. (laughs) Well, you know, it's It's talking about uh, sliding and smooth. It's like, yeah, you went right there. It's going to stick in our <laughs> listeners' minds. That's what we want. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, next item. Um, uh, kind of rounding out the talk on the heads. So if you go back to the AeroV manual, uh, it talks about checking the torque on the head bolts. Now, this is kind of one of those things where if you are going to do it properly, you have to remove the entire rocker arm assembly to get it out of the way to get to four of those eight head bolts down in there. Uh, so... Gary, um, I guess I'll, I'll kick to you first. What do you do on a routine basis, and how often do you check those head bolt torques? Well, I'm going to first predicate this on the on the hope that anybody that bought those aluminum Nicosil cylinders has pulled those things off and thrown them in the trash can. 
because those things will continue to, to, to shrink right down. And you'll have loose uh, um, um, torque values until they just mushroom in the heads. And it's going to take a freaking sledgehammer to get those heads off uh, because they're so deformed. So assuming we're finished with all those aluminum nicocell cylinders, which I bought initially as well. Uh, yeah, you can look at those. Uh, you know, I think with the steel ones, I personally, once I switched back to the steel, I really never had any significant issues. You know, you might find a slight amount of torque change on, on your first check, but after that, they pretty much seated and I didn't have any issues. I think possibly it could vary a little bit depending on what you actually use to seal uh, the shims to set your compression ratios with the cylinders. Uh, I, I particularly like that. Um, um, cranberry colored loctite stuff that uh, uh the people from uh, great plains recommended i can't remember the exact number right now uh, i still got some of it. i just don't i'm having a, a mental brain fart here on what number that loctite is uh, but it's an anaerobic sealer that once it seats um shoving out the shoving out the the oxygen contact it really seals it perfectly and it's not quite so loose as perhaps trying to use some of the uh the RTV stuff or, or using, which you should never use anyway, but, or, or using even some of the, the Permatex former gasket. I really like that Loctite product much, much better when I did my second engine rebuild. Okay. And um, if you positively have identified a problem in the head, what's the next step to fix the problem? Do, are we talking about simply replacing valves? Are we talking about doing a complete head rebuild? What what are our options and what, what we need to do? Well, crap, it actually could be back into your cylinder block itself. Uh, you know, the, the studs are actually, they have helicoils down into the block itself. And if for some reason those were not set right or they lose or they started to pull loose, uh, now you actually have a cylinder block issue rather than a head issue. Right. Okay. Well, but but if you're gonna if it is a head issue, then you know I had that problem. Um, I, the first set of heads that I had bought with my ROV, um, I I had leaking valves, and and then I think a little bit of that was just the quality of the machinist that uh, Sonex had employed at the time to supply that equipment so i took it to a machine shop and had him put new valves and everything in it and then had valves and seats and it was just a matter of i don't know 25 30 hours i had the same problem again so i wound up just buying new heads uh and uh i since then i haven't had any problems so yeah. But that's been my experience and sonics has used a couple of different manufacturers for heads uh, it's it's gone through some some changes over the years. It's really hard to identify which ones were the the problematic ones. Um, I I guess I'll just leave it as sort of generic advice. If you're having valve problems, take it to a local VW shop and tell them to do a complete valve job, change the the seats, change the guides, put new valves in it, and see how that works. And if you still have problems then it might be the best, simplest thing is to get a new set of heads. New heads are about $300 a head from Sonics. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, that's really not that big of an expense. I think they're probably well, almost cheaper buying new ones than having them reconditioned. You're right, yeah. I mean, it's it's going to run you a couple couple hundred bucks minimum 
to take it to a machine shop and have them between 200 and 250. And at that point, it's just, you just as well to buy new ones. I mean, what are you really saving? So let's talk one more thing about heads if we can for just a moment. Uh-huh. Uh, what's the consensus about uh, going ahead and putting uh, spark plug inserts in of one sort or another, just up front rather than waiting for issues when you try to remove, remove plugs later on and find out they got called. Well, I think this goes back to uh, which which version of the head that you're running. There there was one mm-hmm. particular version that seemed to have more problems than the others. The 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 newest versions that are going out seem to have real crisp machining and and the the, the quality seems to be excellent. But there were some that were out there that were maybe a little more prone to this. So that's how I would approach it you know, critically look at your heads when you're putting your engine together, or if you're already, if you're not the original assembler of the engine, you may have to get in there with a, with a close inspection. And, um, if it looks like your spark plug threads are, are not gonna, you know, do the job, they're really thin or oversized and sloppy, it might be better just to preemptively do it. Correct. Does anybody else have a preference? I can tell you I've tried both time cert and helicoils. And although the time certs are vastly more expensive, I think for me, uh, it was a superior product to insert. I agree. I don't think helicoil spark plugs is the right application. I think it can work, but a time cert done properly absolutely will work and give you better quality to boot. I would agree. Yeah. So that's two of us. Are yeah. We all three. I, uh, Gary, I'll, I'll just say it like this. If you have an unknown vintage head, maybe you just go ahead and do it while you have the heads apart. If you have the latest model, I think I would run them and see how it goes. Yeah. I have the latest model on mine right now and I haven't had any problems. So I'm pretty happy with them. So. Okay, well, I want to back up just a little bit. Um, we talked about doing a, a good visual inspection. And the way I like to do it is I, I like to kind of methodically drill down. I, I start with a very broad overview as I'm kind of circling the engine, just looking to see what catches my eye. And then as I, as I get more detailed, I kind of clean as I go and, and really try to identify if maybe I have a problem that I, I need to look a little closer at. But some of those areas that I, I think you're really going to want to look at you're going to want to look at your cooling baffles and see if you've got cracks that are starting in there. Look at your hose clamps on the intake hoses. Those couplers can can get loose. The the, the rubber or the silicone um, couplers that join the, the intake manifold pipes to the those machined aluminum uh, pieces, the elbows, those can get loose over time. You might see some um, some powdery residue around your case hardware or around the magnetrons and the alternator, meaning that something is vibrating and that powdery residue is a result of some sort of vibration. Check over your electrical connectors, especially on the pigtails coming out of the alternator. If you see a bunch of grimy black goo in there, again, vibration and corrosion, and it's only a matter of time before you're going to have uh, electrical problems, you know, getting your, your alternator working properly. You're looking for leaks, and Carl, I want to talk about this here just next. I want to talk about where the likely leaks are and and how to identify them and how to fix them. But um, you're also looking at at wobble in the prop shaft. Gary, I think you can talk about this, wobble up front 
or excessive end play front to back in the crank. So those are kind of the first things that I'm looking for in the overall uh, sort of pre-inspection as I'm as I'm working my way through. So let's go, Gary. Let's first talk about crankshaft, and then we'll talk about leaks, Carl. All right. Well, if I'm first up, we're talking about crankshafts. You know, what I really like to do is actually hand rotate the prop through all four cycles. Um, I think, you know, when you do that on uh, at least on an intermittent basis, even between your annuals, you can kind of get a general idea. If you're getting the same kind of compression feel and kickback through the prop as you're rotating it around, and I think that gives you another good clue. You know, sometimes you'll pick on, up unusual ticks, too. Uh, it could be something perhaps as an excessive uh, valve clearance as well as you're rotating that prop around. Uh, it could be have something to do with your magnetic pickups back there where, you're, where your timing is. Uh, and so that gives you a good idea, too. You know, I, I had a, a number four bearing failure on my first injury build. Um, and, and I noticed it basically when I started doing, I started noticing more uh, seepage around the flange. I started when I started doing my rotating around, it just felt like it was getting looser. I started to feel hear some unusual sounds. And I says, you know, I think I just need to tear this thing down. And it was a good thing I did uh, because I had significant gouges in my uh, crankshaft uh, at that number four number or, or the prop uh, bearing there, too, because it was a very thin bearing. And that time I was doing a whole lot of yanking and banking in the signs. I really loved all that, uh, you know, positive cheese stuff, getting up about four or four and a half G's, doing little loops and rolls and, you know, semi hammerheads and everything else I could do to, to, to ring out this thing. I was having a grand old time in it. And I, I may have overstressed it, too. And that was before the time. And they were coming out. They were talking about whether or not you should remove that oil flow restrictor to the number four valve or not unfortunately mine had it in there and i already had my engine assembled by the time the discussion came out and i figured i'd wait so i never know for sure whether it was just because i exerted an, an extraordinary amount of aerobatic g loads to that prop bearing or whether perhaps it was related to the oil flow restrictor so yeah rotate the prop around see what it feels like you know if you find one that just really flips really quickly Hmm, you say to yourself, that might be an issue. You can grab that prop and yank it four and a half, too, and see what your gap end is set to uh, as far as where your shims are back there at the number one bearing. Um, that's a whole other discussion on how to set that number one bearing gap uh, as well. We can probably go into that in some other, some other issue as well. Um, so that's one of the first things that I would do just to kind of see what the health of the engine is as well. And Gary, you're absolutely right. If you don't know what normal is, checking it one time during the annual, you're not going to be able to detect a change from normal. So you got to build this sort of inventory mentally as you go. Yeah, it's a muscle memory, yeah. Yeah, okay. And um, that number one restrictor, or no, I'm sorry, the number four bearing, the front bearing that's closest to the prop hub, it's, it's the smallest bearing out there. It's long been considered, you know, the the most the fragile of the of the VW conversion bearings. But um, the, the biggest thing is, if you have a problem, it's going to give you an indication. Either you're going to see uh, your oil analysis is going to show some, some bearing wear materials or maybe something from your crank, and you're going to start to see a little bit of play up in the front there. So if you were paying attention, it's going to give you some indication that things are starting to kind of come unraveled. But if you never even think to look at it, you may miss it and then you blow right past it until you have a more serious problem developing. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, let's talk uh, oil leaks. So, Carl, you you uh, chased a couple of oil leaks around your engine. First off, let's let's talk about where you're likely to get oil leaks from, because where you see the oil on your engine may have nothing to do with where it came from. And then let's talk about um, how do we solve those oil leaks. Well, um, predominantly, uh, oil leaks are going to come from your pushrod tubes, your valve cover gaskets. Um, you could get some seepage from the case halves. Or in, in my case, I had my biggest problem was the rear main seal. Um, I had my engine off at least four times. And I replaced the seal uh, four or five times with new seals. Um, I even bought the I even bought a new replacement uh, flywheel flange adapter that goes you know that seals that slides in on the crank K or the crank, and that's what the seal you know rides against and is supposed to seal, and that didn't even help. So what I you know so that was the biggest problem that I had, and what I finally wound up doing in my case was going to uh, a what they call a double it's called a double lip sand uh, seal that they use for sand rails in the desert and stuff like that and it's basically a double lipped rear main seal and that fixed that problem so I used one that too was, it worked well yeah it did, it did work well I mean I, I had the engine off four or five times and bought new seals every single time bought all new parts and each time I did it, I got more meticulous to make sure that I was, you know, after, you know, after the, the first time, maybe it was bad seal. Second time, you start to think, well, maybe it was something I did. Third time, you start to think, oh, you you know, maybe it was bad parts. Fourth time, you're just mad, you know, because yeah. you've done it so many times that you've know you, you, you can you've got it down to a science and it shouldn't do it. But, you know, regardless, you know, the. The double lip sand rail seal worked for me in that application. Um, I found the best the best uh, pushrod tubes that seal the best for the application of the Aero-V is the stock uh, steel expandable tubes with the rings that come with the engine. All (laughs) All those other ones are a big fat waste of time. Uh, and you know, money. I tried them all myself, and I agree. Yeah, with you. It, they it just, are. It's, it's just learning the technique to install them correctly. Yes, but the the standard steel tube, uh, you know, expand it out. You know, you take a screwdriver and you got to um, take a round shanked screwdriver and, and run it on the inside lip of the of each end of the tube so that you don't have a, a turn in. You know, you kind of flatten it out and make it nice and round and flat. Put the ring over. You stretch them out, you know, and then when you stretch them out and put them in and start to assemble everything, you just want to make sure that everything is lined up real nice. And that's the best way to do it. Uh, the 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 expander ones with the springs and and all I that. I didn't other have any stuff, success with them. They leak just as bad as anything else. If not worse, I mean, you yeah. actually you actually create another place for oil to leak by the expanding. Of the Joy, tubes because sure. they give you the O-ring to put over the two tubes where they meet together. So yeah. you have another point of failure is all you're adding to it. So I tried those, um, various types of valve covers and valve cover gaskets and stuff like that. It's just, 
you know, your valve covers. Because the thing with the valve covers, you know, is if you can find good silicone valve cover gaskets, because as often as we pull the valve covers off and put them back on, it's it's just good investment to buy a good quality set of silicone, you know, reusable valve covers because we we do. You you think about it, you pull that off a lot when you adjust well, the valves and check these. So you're talking about using a screwdriver expand. I actually found that I used a, a hardwood, very thin hardwood dowel uh, to try to work those bellows out because they're they're really kind of they're kind of tricky to actually get them to expand out the, like like you want them to. So I stuck a nice big piece of wooden uh, dowel in there and kind of pulled and prodded and, and got them all lined up and expanded with that. And then I, I secondarily, I, I did like the Permatex uh, 3 Forma gasket stuffed between uh, uh, the silicone seals on both sides of those, slop them up fairly good. Uh, I will say that with the Permatex guys, take your time with that stuff it is not an instant seal let that stuff get really really gummy and tacky before you worry about putting it together it's not like some things like a like a super glue where you where as soon as you put it on you got to slam it in place just let that stuff sit out for a while whether you're using it uh on the uh, push rod tubes or using it on the intake uh, manifolds or anywhere else you're using that stuff just let it sit and get gooey and tacky and and almost rubber before you start to slam them together. That would be correct. <coughs> yep, that's very important to let that get set up and follow the instructions and don't be in a hurry. Because uh, one more spot you, for for leaks though is that oil pump cover. Uh, you know, there's various ways of assembling those things with with gaskets, depending on what your uh, your, your gapping is there between the gears and, and the housing cover. Uh, so it's easy to get a, a, a small little leak there. And that's by the time you it blows back across the engine, you're kind of figuring out where is the stuff coming from. Uh, and so that's another potential spot as well. Yep. So if we, if we have leaks and we're trying to track them down, uh, what do you recommend to clean up the engine and the case to, uh, to be able to get just a, a better idea on what you're looking at. What what solvents are going to be appropriate for that task? Aviation blue. That's what I use. No, I mean to, to clean things up, not not necessarily to trace a leak. But what you know? Do you use a, an aerosol cleaner? Do you use simple green aircraft? Do you uh, you know what what do you recommend? Cleaning I like brake. I like brake uh, brake cleaner myself. Brake part cleaner brake works. Cleaner. The thing yeah. you have to be, the thing you got to be careful though of is it, um, when you're using various types of chemicals, is the is it compatible with the seals and the rubber bits and pieces that you're going to get it on? So I will use either star, uh, solvent or aviation blue, just fuel. You mean like mineral spirits solvent or something no. different? No, yeah, just a, just st standard uh, stoddard solvent that okay. you get, you know, in a five-gallon bucket. It's kind of expensive. It's about like $45, $50 for a five-gallon <gasps> bucket. No wonder or, I haven't used it. I've been cheap. Yeah, why? Well, but I'll just I'll just use – I have a wand and uh, a wand and a uh, sprayer that you can, you know, picks up chemical and air blasts and washes it. But I'll just use fuel. 
aviation yeah. blue and wash the engine down, you know, of course, cool, yeah. not hot, you know. And uh, it, 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 cause it's compatible with the seals and stuff and it'll, it'll, and it's cheaper at, you know, 420 a gallon and solvent and it does just as good a job. So. Yeah. And uh, you can certainly use a little cup and a brush, you know, if you don't want to, you know, use a, a pressurized sprayer. Uh, one of the things I like to do, uh, and, and I also use 100 low lead, you know, like that also, Carl. But one of the things I like to use is the spray cans of electrical contact cleaner. You can get it from Napa and the auto department and, and uh, Walmart and all that kind of stuff. But contact cleaner is relatively mild and it won't strip paint. It won't damage plastic. It's made to be used in plastic uh, electrical appliances. And so it, it will wash away the oil without doing collateral damage to everything around it. Yeah, I'd use some of that too. You know, you talk about paint. Here's another side tone. I would actually recommend nobody paint their engines. You know, it was kind of recommended in the manual. Uh, but I actually, when I did my second engine, I just let that thing bare metal. And I actually liked it much, much better to be able to identify where stuff was coming from. Well, it's still going to be, it'll it'll eventually be bare metal anyway. Yes, absolutely. Over, the over paint's going to come off. Absolutely. Yeah, it's between, all going to flake off anyway. But it flakes off late. and what we apply to it, cleaning it all the time. Just yep. leave it bare metal. Yep. I would agree 100% with that. So, yep. Okay, well, um, just kind of looking through some of these other things that you might want to look at. When you're looking at the, the engine case and the accessories, obviously you're looking for loose nuts and bolts, but the case hardware doesn't seem to come loose very often. So I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to retorque every, every nut around the perimeter of the case. But what does come loose are your, um, your exhaust system, the, the bolts that hold the exhaust to the flange, you know, those can come loose. You can have exhaust uh, gaskets that fail and blow out or just different things like that. So spend some time looking over your exhaust, check those exhaust bolts, and uh, make sure that that's still firmly in place. You also want to make sure your carburetor stays attached. Yeah. Yeah, I actually always safety wired mine. Did you guys safety wire yours up to the intake manifold? Yep. Yeah, I'd yep. say, yeah. I'd and, uh, safety wire of mine. Yep. I, yeah. I like to, I just, I just change it every annual, you know, just because, uh, it, uh, if you have to, you know, wiggle the carb and get it out of the way, you might be flexing on that, on that safety wire. It's just something I did. I, I cut the safety wire off and, and then just reattached it every time. Cause again, Carl, like you mentioned, you don't want that carb coming loose and falling out of your intake. Or it'd be a really bad time to get a ginormous vacuum leak. Right. <laughs> you can have a slight <laughs> mixture problem at that point. Yeah. <laughs> when you talk about vacuum leaks, again, that was one of the things I noticed, too, is those worm uh, screw clamps we typically use uh, to junction the intake to the silicone to the intake uh, runners there. Uh, we'll have a tendency to get loose over time, too, and you can get an intake leak there, too, that can really make your life miserable for a while. Yeah, uh, you so definitely, make sure you check all those worm clamps. Definitely want to check and make sure they're tight. And you also want to look to make sure that they're not so tight they're cutting their way through those couplers and that the couplers themselves are not cracked and damaged. I usually, like on my intake manifold, I have double them up. I run two instead of one. Yeah. Yeah, not a bad idea, actually. Two clamps at I each joint. I hate to admit you're smarter than me. But. Yeah, I run two clamps at every joint. 
So mm. I just like the redundancy. Yeah. Yeah. While you're looking at your exhaust, <clears throat> make sure you look for any kind of heat damage to the cowling. If you have a, a tight spot, especially where that front cylinder where the pipe comes out, it sits pretty close to the fiberglass cowling. So you want to make sure that you're not overheating the, the fiberglass. You may need to go in there and put some reflective tape or cut some of that fiberglass out and create a blister to give you a little more standoff room. So check that over. Or chafing. And sometimes you can use uh, the cowling chafe, chafe tape. I particularly like that uh, Teflon type cowling ch uh, anti-chafe tape. I use it in various spots uh, where my current cowling is very, very tight to some of my ancient components. Uh, because you'll get a little bit of vibration there and it can rub holes through your cowling pretty quickly. Right. Okay. Um, we talked about safety wiring the carb to the intake. Uh, but when you are looking at the actual carb itself, assuming you're running an aero carb, there's a few things that I like to look at. Uh, I like to make sure that there's not a lot of oil kind of dripping off the slide and make sure that there's no fuel staining. If, if you're leaking fuel out of, of any of those orifices, you're going to have a deposit that builds up of that blue dye in the hundred low lead. So see if there's anything like that. Remove the air filter. You're going to have to service the air filter anyway. So you're either going to change the paper air filter and put a new one in, or if you're running a K&N, you're going to clean it out and re-oil it. But while you have the air filter off, Look up inside the throat of the carburetor and see if there's a bunch of black residue that's deposited on the slide. That could give you an indication that maybe you're running a little rich and you're kicking back some of that sooty uh, uh, residue back into the carburetor. Well, it's also good to look at your exhaust stacks to see, you know, you should have a nice gray color built up on the inside of your exhaust stack. If you're black, you know, then you're running yourself rich also. That's another thing you could check. Right. Right. And some of that information you can get off your, your, your plug condition, too, when you pull those during your compression test. And then uh, lastly on the carburetor, you know, aside from just making sure that all your cables are secured and things like that, but you want to make sure that the set screw that holds the needle in position, the whole needle carrier, you want to make sure that thing is still nice and snug. If that set screw backs off and, and loosens, vibration can slowly cause your your mixture to change over time. And typically what's going to happen is it's going to vibrate in, which is going to lean out your mixture. Correct. Okay, uh, just a few other misc items that you may just look at while you're doing your inspection. Check your motor mount, the rubber bushings. So they're a relatively small bushing. They're, they're, they're sourced from a, a different OEM use, and they're relatively small. And the weight of the engine, especially if you're yanking and banking, will put a lot of strain on those rubber bushings. So check to make sure that they're not collapsing under the weight of it, and uh, you may need to change them every other year or some, some schedule like that. But if you find that they're collapsing on you, you can take a hose clamp and put it around the outside of that rubber bushing, kind of like a girdle to reinforce that, that rubber bushing. And that might give you a little bit more sturdy uh, support to kind of keep those things in place. Because over time, they will flow around the pins that the engine is mounted to, the engine mount pins on the engine mount. Okay, what other things uh, kind of come to your guys' mind that you want to look at? Oh, I, I don't, you know, we pretty much hammered that one pretty good. I mean, you just everything, 
I mean, overall, a quick bird's eye view that anything that catches your eye right off the bat, and then you just want to go back through a more detailed looking for items, you know, that just don't look right. You know, that's look for, you know, leaks. That's a big thing. Leaks are always important, but you, you know, where you see the oil isn't necessarily where it's leaking from. So you got to kind of work your way back. It's always a good idea when you're, you know, getting finished up to have it good and clean and do a good thorough, a nice run up and then leak check everything again and see, you know, if you can clean it all up real nice and then, and run it for a little bit, but not so long, you know, that it's going to leak and blow oil everywhere. If you have a problem, you can help to identify it that way. So at least troubleshoot it down to pinpoint it a little bit, you know, and then as we talk about the gestalt view of this, and we've talked about this before, you're just doing a general inspection and actually put your hands on every little connector and make sure it either stays put like it's supposed to or it moves like it's supposed to. Don't just kind of look at it and say it looks like it's okay um, because they can fool you. Uh, even particularly as we start talking about going back where the uh, the alternator starts to attach to the ignition coils and things of that nature. Um, you know, you want to make sure everything really is snug and all the battery can uh, terminals are snug and and your your ground contacts from your engine are snug and and all those things don't just cursorily look at them actually try to get your hands in there and move them and make sure they do what they need to do yep it's a touchy feely inspection absolutely yep definitely all right. Well, I think that's probably enough on uh, on some of the particular items that you know that that we like to focus on. Let's talk about just putting everything back together and and checking your work. So, Carl, as you kind of think back to your own experience working on your engine, what might you offer up as the areas that a person ought to pay particular attention to that could get overlooked? They forgot to do something. You know, they they loosen something and they've forgotten to go back and retighten it. What comes to mind as the likely suspects? Uh, mostly the induction system. Um, a lot of times I see a lot of people are chasing problems with performance or manifold pressures. Um, they're, and they're usually because they've had to remove part of the induction system to get down into the backside to, you know, to get your big arm down there to take something else off. And then when you go back to put it all back together, um, something isn't just sit, set right or sealing properly. And then they're chasing down, trying to figure out why they're having, you know, not their manifold pressure isn't coming up or the performance isn't what it was. And that's generally been my biggest problem with V is getting everything to seal up on the induction system. And that's the reason, that's one of the reasons why I went to double clamping everything was for that because I spent a lot of time chasing, you know, vacuum leaks, induction leaks, and man, you know, manifold pressure problems because of the turbo, you know, not being able to make power. So, but that's what it's been for me. Yeah, Carl, that's deceptively simple too. You think, oh, the clamp's tight. It's got to be good. Well, maybe, but don't necessarily assume that. You really got to make sure that it's good. Correct. Yeah. I mean, just because it's there and it's tight doesn't mean it's sealed. So... That's why that's, you know, like I said, that's the reason why I do double clamps now. Yeah. 
something that comes to mind, you know, you're, you, you've got the valve covers off and um, you're going to be putting all that back together. But the bolts that hold the valve cover in place, you know, they have these little O-rings on there. A lot of times those O-rings will get nicked up when you're taking these things on and off. So make sure that you have a few extras of those O-rings so you can change them when they need to be changed. And you don't try to reuse one that's in ragged condition. Yeah, I would order those things by the dozen. I always yeah. had a hard time keeping those things intact. They just, they live a hard life, yep. And then make sure you use a drop of Loctite on there so you don't lose a, a bolt that holds your valve cover on. That's a silly way to, to create a mess. You know, another simple thing too, perhaps not so much with the AeroV, uh, but, you know, label your spark plug leads. You'd be surprised at how easy sometimes it is to get the, the plugs, <laughs> leads on the wrong spark plugs. You know, fortunately, if you, if you have all of your cylinders completely wired with uh, engine monitors for CHT and EGT, if you did actually put something on incorrectly, it's, it's fairly easy to identify that way, but it does happen. Yep. Um, pay particular attention to when you put your spark plugs in, especially if you're putting in like new spark plugs or something like that. Um, you may have finger tight installed the spark plugs thinking, I'm going to go grab my torque wrench and finish this job up. But when you get, you forgot about that and then you get to the end and you realize that you didn't put your spark plug leads on and you just go ahead and clip them all in place and you never really torque down your plugs. And it's going to spit them out on you if you don't have them torqued down. Uh, likewise, the, the little terminal caps that thread onto the end of the spark plug, you know, make sure those things are, are tightened in place and you can kind of grip them with some, some pliers and kind of snug them down. Uh, you don't want those things to start to unscrew with the vibration. You'll get a kind of a rattly fit on the end there, and that's going to give you potential problems on those spark plugs firing. And then uh, just make sure that you don't get distracted halfway when you're doing your oil change. You know, make sure that everything's buttoned back up. You filled the oil to the proper level. You didn't start to fill it and then wait for the oil level to, to settle down before topping the thing off and, and you're really running low on oil. So just take a second look. If you run a remote oil filter, which I recommend everybody do that, whether you're running a turbo or not, make sure that you torqued up the, the filter back into your remote filter housing. And that it's not just, again, finger tight in place. You know, when we talk about oil, I might want to bring up one more thing about oil pressure and some of the diagnostics involved. Um, the two engines I've done, you know, uh, each one started to get about 350 hours before they needed to start to have some serious maintenance done. I'm, I'm not sure what the average fleet maintenance value is. I'm sure there's a lot of variables, but that's what I'm seeing so far. So what if you start to get a, a, a trend of, of a lower oil pressure? What are you going to do? I mean, certainly first check to make sure your dipstick level is correct, right? Uh, but there's a host of problems that can cause that. Uh, perhaps the oil pump gears are starting to have some clearance issues. Um, perhaps you have too much uh, head gasket between headspace between the gear and the and the uh, pump cover. Could be something simple to do. Uh, or it may be something more 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 sinister and complex, you know, dealing with your connecting rods or even your main uh, main crankshaft bearings, too. So if you start getting some lower uh, oil pressure, you know, it's, it's a simple fix to try to, you know, check that uh, oil pressure uh, plunger towards the rear of the, the cylinder. You know, you can add you actually get one of these aftermarket adjustable plungers that you can stick in there to try to increase your oil pressure. But are you actually just, you know, 
curing the symptom rather than the disease. Uh, so you have to be careful when you're doing some of those things. You have to kind of more evaluate whether or not you're actually starting to have some bearing issues and whether or not it really necessitates a complete teardown. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. Well, the the last thing on my mind is your the uh, this kind of goes back to the the accident we talked about the fuel lines where they connect to the carburetor and the oil lines where they connect to the oil pump. So if you have a bottom mount oil cooler, in order to drain the sump, you're going to have to swing that cooler. Well, likely you're going to have to remove the the shroud on the bottom of the engine and let that thing kind of swing out of the way. Well, anytime you're you're grabbing a flex line and kind of moving it or wiggling it or you know rotating it on the lines, there's the potential that it's it's working to loosen those nuts up on those fittings. So if you at all disturbed your oil lines or you you know you maybe had to pull the carb off and or do a little something even if you didn't disconnect the line if you disturb the system at all go back and just make sure that your your nuts are snug down properly on those fittings again you may not think I, I i got into that system but you inadvertently created a little bit of a loosening trend that then vibration over the next few hours is going to finish for you good advice i would agree with that all right. Well, um, I guess maybe let's just wrap this up with some final thoughts. So I'll, I'll offer my final thought on this is just really watch out for the distractions. You know, this is like where you're you're working on something and something happens. You you realize you don't have the parts to finish the task at hand. You have to go get them. Or you run out of time on one work session and you set everything down and you come back and hit it the next day. Or somebody walks by. Whatever. Whatever the distraction is. But just really be mindful of distractions interrupting your flow where you don't come back to it. So that ought to be a, a trigger that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. If you at all get interrupted in a task, you got to make a note to come back and really double, triple check that that task was completed properly and completely and that you didn't forget about something. And I'll tell I, – I, I think I've talked about this before – when I rebuilt my AeroV, that's exactly what happened to me. I had I had been working on it. I had drained all the oil out, and uh, I didn't have I didn't have everything I needed. And so I figured, well, I'll just uh, I'll make myself a little note, and I'll make sure to top the oil back off when I come back. Well, I didn't come back right away. We went on a we went on a trip, and it was like a month later when I finally came back. And there was no oil in the engine. So I fired up and congratulated myself that everything was running great for about two minutes until the engine seized up because I hadn't put any oil back into it. And so simple, simple little distractions can can cause you big problems. So that's my final thought. Don't let the distractions go unchecked. You have to catch them and correct them before you move past it. Gary, what do you think? Boy, I have to say I can't top that one. <laughs> I've told that story before, but uh, I, it never I, gets I feel easier. For you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one, but yeah, I feel for you. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll just stick a, a, a core oil on top of the engine, um, you know, just you know, just so I know it, it, there's oil there. Why is there oil there? <laughs> it gives you kind of a visual clue as well. That was in my younger reckless days. Yeah. About 50 years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Gary, any other final thoughts you want to pass along to wrap it up? 
No, buddy. I think that's it. Just grab this thing, yank it, pull it, prod it, turn it, twist it, check it. Make sure it does or doesn't do what you want it to do. Hey, you could do that with your own, but you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a team sport. Grab a buddy and, you know. And I got to say, everything works fine. So there you go. <laughs> In your own mind. So. All right, Carl. So um, ha- having your AMP experience and your, your whole, uh, you know, hangar full of uh, engines to keep running. What do you think the, uh, the, the, the simple secret to, to doing good maintenance on your engine really boils down to? Um, be thorough and take your time. Don't ever get in a hurry. And if you get in a hurry, you need to stop. Cause you're not, you know, you'll, you'll take shortcuts and you'll forget something. So take your time. Yeah. Well, that's great. All right, guys. Well, I think that'll, uh, that'll wrap this one up. Uh, I appreciate all your thoughts and, and experience, you know, working on these things. Uh, it, it seems like really simple, basic advice, but I think it's useful to run through it. Go through the known areas, go through the thought process that, that kind of leads you through doing a good thorough inspection, and maybe try to relay some of this stuff to other builders who are, are still developing their own approach on how to maintain their AeroVs. So I appreciate that input. Before we uh, totally wrap this up, I just want to make a a pitch for the next Firewall Forward seminar that we're going to do. Once again, we're going to do it here in Kansas City. That's going to be June 8th and 9th. And it's going to be two days of of going through all those those tips and tricks that we've learned collectively over the past 15 years on putting AeroVs and Jabiru's in. How do you take the Sonics firewall forward installation instructions how do you really interpret them what are the little things that you need to spend extra attention on and what are some of those advanced refinements that we have developed over the years that's just going to give you a really good installation so you can go to the website you can check out the agenda and all the details and if that's something that you think you're interested in go ahead and register for it and come on out here to kansas city in june and and we'll go through it with you all right Carl, thanks for hanging in here. Um, it looks like we lost John. Uh, probably, uh, you know, he's got to get up early and, you know, go, um, I don't know, save some baby penguins or something in, in Antarctica again. <laughs> I thought he got awful quiet. Yeah. He's munching on cookies. Yeah. Well, it, it was a long one, but uh, I think it was a uh, very well done. So thanks again. Enjoy the good weather. I think we're finally in the good flying season. Speak for yourself. Oh, oh really? So, it's, uh, it hasn't been treating you well. I thought you guys had better weather than I did. Uh, we got rain and clouds today, so we'll see. Hopefully. Well, yeah. I'm off to, off to Paris here next for the next week. Yeah. Well, uh, that, to go play with trip. his wee wee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again. Uh, appreciate everything, and we'll talk to you again soon. Alrighty. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Select podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. 
All right. Now, don't cut my spot about – are you there? Uh, yeah, I'm not cutting anything. I'm just going to leave it all in there. Especially about John's small balls and his uh, transponder antennas, okay? Absolutely. Uh, you know, hey, uh, th- we got to capture these things for, uh, you know, for history. Yeah, absolutely. That was a good one. <laughs>